Hey listeners, as a reminder, this episode will contain adult language and adult themes. In addition, this episode contains discussions of torture, including descriptions, and contains a historical account using a pejorative term for the Romani people. Listener discretion is advised. The first part of my life was men taking things from me, and then I took their lives, and their things, and their homes, and then we took Styria, after which we formed our little enclave. We tried not to do more harm. We tried to make a home. And then the wolf people came from the north, and the armies from the west, and every other bastards came for us. And we asked for help. What did the rest of the vampire world say? Bloody women, they said. Let them die, they said. So I'm going to take everything from everybody. I saw right there that I could take the world away from him and have it for myself. The world, Lenore. Will I be happy when I've done that? I don't know. I don't know if I even care. But I will have everything that they had. And they will be dead. I will have the world that I want, Lenore. And that, that will be enough. Having everything will be enough. Having the world and all of them being dead. Hey everybody, welcome back to Cavalcade Tales. As always, I am your host, Drew, the Millennial with a History Degree. Apologies for the kerfuffle last week. I had some issues with my uh, audio software that I used to record the episodes. And hopefully, now that I've switched over to this new program, um, everything will work out a little bit better. Um, So unfortunately, um, or rather not unfortunately... This week's episode is what was supposed to be last week's episode, which is a look of the character Carmilla, the most famous literary vampire. Uh, In today's episode, we are going to cover the uh, 1872 short story, then look at the myth and real historical figure that inspired the tale, and then we'll delve into the fictionalized Carmilla of the Castlevania series including the games and the Netflix series of which I pulled the opening speech from. I hope you're all ready for some fun times with lady vampires. So to start, we're starting with the uh, 1872 short story, Carmilla, uh, written by J. Sheridan Lefanu in 1872. Uh, The version I will be referencing um, is the edition I own, which is the Serenity Publishing edition. Um... However, the work is most likely on the online project Gutenberg, uh, which is a fabulous online resource where you can go and you can read a lot of different stories that are hundreds of years old as they've been getting digitized. Um, When I did uh, way back in the second episode, the um, historian tries to recall the whole messy plot of the Arthurian canon, I actually uh, referenced some of the La Morte d'Arthur which I read on Project Gutenberg. If you want some other fun vampire tales on Project Gutenberg, uh, the tale Varney the Vampire, which was a serial released in newspapers for, I want to say like 20 years, uh, that uh, entire vampiric work is on Project Gutenberg as well. And it also, I believe, is the first literary vampire who bought, uh, sank the fangs into the neck. I don't know if this has to do with a change in understanding of how arteries work, where instead of, you know, biting the chest where you could get it directly from the heart versus the neck where you can get some of those big, thick arteries, I'm not sure, but it's a fun little thing. So, Carmilla the Short Story is famously a very sapphic work because it, one of the great things about vampires, and there's been plenty of articles written about this, I can send you one that I read hold on i have it in a notebook over here no i don't i tore that page out just kidding but there's a whole thing about like the vampires as like sexual beings and discussing like sexual worries and carmilla is this sort of like expression of like the fear of like what women will do to each other which isn't super common in a lot of historical things so there's blood you know not to say that people didn't hate lesbians in the past or like just or just like cool with it um 
because of a fun little term called phallocentrism, uh, a lot of people were just like, well, two girls messing around isn't really sex because there isn't a penis involved. It's only an issue when there's a like a dildo or strap-on involved. And there's even Pentecostal like manuals for priests to be like, if you've done this sin, this is the amount of Hail Marys you have to prescribe. I, I, I clearly don't know any of the Catholic or Christian doctrines. I don't know if uh, it's like, oh yes, here's your prescription uh, four Hail Marys and then take 15 liters of Jesus's blood over four days. I'm a, to fuck if I know. Um, but it was technically a form of sodomy because it wasn't, it's sex that isn't procreative. But this is one hell of a tangent. Um, so Carmela, the story is centered around the main character whose name is Laura. Laura is a young woman who lives in a semi-isolated castle in Styria, which is in what would now be modern day Hungary. Um, a lot of the, or, um, a lot of the places I'll be talking about today are, uh, like Wallachia, Styria, Brela, Transylvania. They're all in what is like that Eastern European chunk. And in the story, Laura has, you know, she lives in this isolated castle. And then when she's little, she has this uh, weird dream uh, to quote from the book. I was vexed and insulted at myself, for I conceived, neglected, and began to whimper, preparatory to a hearty bout of roaring, when to my surprise, I saw a solemn but pretty face looking at me from the side of the bed. It was that of a young lady who was kneeling with her hands under the coverlet. I looked at her with a pleased wonder and ceased my whimpering. She caressed me with her hands and laid down beside me on the bed and drew me towards her, smiling. I felt immediately soothed and fell asleep again. I was awakened by the sensation as if two needles ran into my chest very deep at the same moment, and I cried loudly. The lady startled back, her eyes fixed on me, then slipped down upon the floor, and as I thought, hid herself underneath the bed. In the tale, this is our first introduction to the titular vampire. And this happens 12 years before the actual events of the story. Um, what will soon happen is Laura will grow up and she will be haunted by this woman's face and she'll see it sometimes in her nightmares but she you know it becomes like one of those weird little memory nightmares you have as a child that you can kind of remember but it's like not a big thing anymore until one night during a storm there's a loud crash outside her father's castle her father had received this castle in the middle of nowhere as part of being a general and in the overturned carriage outside, there was a madam, her young daughter who was unconscious, and another, like, the person driving. They were trying to get to another area, the next nearest inhabited town, which in the beginning of the book you find out is, like, a good, like, four to five miles away. And her father being, uh, like, dabbling in medicine is like, look, your daughter... Her pulse is there, but her pulse is very irregular and very weak. I don't think it's safe for her to travel. Why don't I send you with one of my coaches? You can go and get to the nearest town to take care of your business, and then you can come pick her up on your way back. And the woman's like, I can't impose on your hospitality. And he's just like, nah, nah, it's cool. And so they end up in custody of this girl. There's a couple, there's a little chunk of time before Laura meets the girl, but then all of a sudden she goes and sees her, and this is their first encounter. I saw the very face which had visited me in my childhood at night, the what which had remained so fixed in my memory, and one which I had for so many years, so often ruminated in horror when no one suspected of what I was thinking. It was pretty, even beautiful, and when I first beheld it, wore the same melancholy expression. But... This almost instantly lighted into a strained, fixed smile of recognition. There was silence of fully a minute, then at length she spoke. I could not. How wonderful, she exclaimed. Twelve years ago, I saw your face in a dream. It has haunted me ever since. Wonderful indeed, I repeated, overcoming with an effort the horror that at a time suspended my... Uh, uh, yep. Turning pages is awkward one-handed. 
utterances. Twelve years ago, in a vision or reality, I certainly saw you, and I could not forget your face. It has remained before my eyes ever since. And it's kind of like that I'm reading into it a little bit. It's like that. It's a little bit of that forbidden fruit angle. It's like I'm scared, but also like a little turned on. Um, because who hasn't seen a person who was so attractive it was intimidating? No, oh, nobody? Okay, um, well, let's move on before I show my entire ass. So there's a lot. So Carmela starts staying with them, but she's a bit odd. She sleeps until the afternoon. She's very languid. Uh, she likes to spend all of her time just p giving praise and talking to Laura about every little thing about Laura, but doesn't really talk about herself. Uh, quote from the book. I cannot say we quarreled upon this point, for she would not quarrel upon any. It was, of course, very, very unfair of me to press her. Very ill-bred, but I would not help it, and I might as well have let it alone. What she did tell me amounted, in my unconscionable estimation, to nothing. It was all summed up in very three vague disclosures. First, her name was Carmilla. Second, her family was very ancient and noble. Third, her home lay in the direction of the West. Based off of the way this is placed and the location of Styria, it's, I want to say your best bet is that she's Transylvanian. Um, I could be wrong. I'm, my Eastern Europe, Eastern European geography is a bit shit. Um, but... You know, she's not giving her much to work with, and they start getting closer and closer, and the father starts messing around, and all of a sudden there's these little uh, pictures that they found. Uh, some very old paintings that the father had been given. And then, so, I'm going to skip around a couple of bit in this passages about this encounter. There's a picture I have not seen yet, said my father. In one corner at the top of it is the name, as well as I could read, Marcia Klarenstein, and the date 1698. I'm curious to see how it turned out. The artist now produced it with evident pride. It was quite beautiful. It was startling. It seemed to live. It was the effigy of Carmilla. Carmilla, dear, here is an absolute miracle. Aren't you live, living, smiling, ready to speak in this picture? Isn't it wonderful, Papa? And see even the little mole on her throat. Will you let me hang this picture in my room, Papa? I asked. Certainly, dear, he said, smiling. I'm very glad you think it's so like. It must be prettier than I even thought it was. So then you find out, this is one of the first times that Carmilla gives away a little bit of herself. As you read quite plainly in the name that is written in the corner, it is not Marcia. It looks like it was done in gold. The name is Mercala, Countess Clarenstein, and this little coronet over and under death, neath, A.D. 1698. I am descended from the Kleinsteins. That is, Mama was. Um, doo -doo -doo -doo. There is a little bit where Carmilla is unnerved by this photo of a Cl this Kleinstein woman who looks just like her and uh, asks if Laura regrets the night that Carmilla came to stay with them and she's just like, dear God, no, it was great delighted and you ask for the picture you think like me to hang in your room how romantic you are whenever you tell me your story it'll be chiefly of some great romance she kissed me silently and then i have been in love with no one and never shall she whispered unless it should be with you but things start to go a little south and the more time that Carmilla spends with Laura, the more languid and sick she becomes. The uh, doctor shows up and sees that there are, there's a large, uh, like a, about the size of your th tip of your thumb, uh, like bruise on the chest by about where the heart would be, which is slightly troublesome. And then one night Carmilla is just gone. And they search for her and search for her, and then they she just appears, and everybody's trying to figure out where she went, and she has no good answers. And people start, like, wondering, like, okay, what the hell's going on here? 
And then Carmilla tries to break into Lara's room. And things go escalate, and then she just flees in the night. After hearing about this from a local... To, after recounting this to a priest, he says, that sounds like this other general. He had a similar issue where he had his daughter died recently after ha attending to an unknown guest. Um, but she... And after soon after the guest vanished the his daughter died you should go give a talk to him all right this so they go and meet the general and he says about the time he met with a girl named malarka malarka complained of extreme languor the weakness that remained after her late illness and she never emerged in a room until the afternoon was pretty far advanced and then my child began to lose her looks and her health, and that in a manner so mysterious, even horrible, uh, I became thoroughly frightened. She was first visited by appalling dreams, then she fancied by a specter, sometimes resembling Malarka, sometimes in the shape of a beast, indistinctly seen, walking around the foot of her bed from side to side. Um, you guess how strangely I felt as I heard my own symptoms being so described in those which had experienced by the poor girl who but for the catastrophe which followed, it could have been that moment a visitor at my father's chateau, you may suppose. Also, how I felt as I heard him detail habits and mysterious precarities, which in fact were those of our beautiful guest Carmilla. So they're starting to realize something's up, and they decide to figure out what's going on with the Clarensteins. And this en ends up being... ending and culminating in a fight at the old Clarenstein estate where they find Carmilla and uh, try to attack her and they see her true vampiric form. Uh, my final little excerpt from the book will be um, the what happens after this final attack when they realize that they're dealing with a vampire. The next day, the formal proceedings took place in the capital, uh, the chapel of Clarenstein. The grave of Countess Mercala, which was her real name, and all of these names she's been using have just been anagrams. Uh, the grave of Countess Mercala was opened, and the general and my father recognized in each of his perfidious and beautiful guests the face now disclosed to view. The features, though 150 years had passed since her funeral, were tinted with the warmth of life. Her eyes were opened, no cadaverous smell exulted from the coffin. The two medical men... One officially present, the other part of the perimeter of the inquiry, attested to the marvelous fact that there was a faint but appreciable respiration and a corresponding action of the heart. The limbs were perfectly flexible, the flesh elastic, and the leaden coffin floated with blood, which to a depth of seven inches the body lay immersed. Here, then, were all the admitted signs and proofs of vampirism. The body, therefore, in accordance with the ancient practice, was raised and a sharp stake driven through the heart of the vampire, who uttered a piercing shriek at the moment, with all respects such as might escape from a living person in their act of him. Then the head was struck off, and a torrent of blood flowed from the severed neck. The body and head were then placed on a pile of wood and reduced to ashes, which were thrown upon a river and borne away, and the territory has never since been plagued by the visits of the vampire. And that is how Carmilla, the character, ends. The story goes on a little bit further about um, just some a, a little bit of Lara's life after this incident, including the fact that she still, in a way, misses Carmilla because she she kind of fell in love with her. And the last bit of the story is about how sometimes when she's alone at night, she sometimes, whether she wishes it to happen or it dreams it to happen, still sometimes feels like she can feel the soft caress of Carmilla's fingers. And that is the short story written by J. Sheridan Lefanu. So the next chunk of this has to do with the facts and fiction about the life of one Hungarian countess. In the tale Carmilla, we, when we find the titular character in her tomb, she's floating in a pool of blood. Some believe this is an allegory to the myth of the blood countess Elizabeth Bathory. So for this little section, uh, which is going to be a little bit of myth and history combined, I'm going to start by telling you the myth of the Blood Countess, who is Elizabeth Bathory. And then I will tell you some facts that are a bit contrary to this myth about the actual woman, Erzabet Bathory. Let me real quick 
go where at the end of my notes on this section. Um, a lot of the material for this section I got from an article uh, called Elizabeth Bathory, A True Story by Alexandra Bartuskowitz. Um, if you wish to uh, read the article yourself, I found it on academia.com for free. Uh, you can download it for free as well. Or is it academia.edu? It's one of those. It's an academic website. And it was incredibly well-researched. And um, yeah, so um, in this section, uh, as I said at the top, there will be descriptions of torture. And in this account of the myth of Elizabeth Bathory, I will be using a pejorative term for the Romani people that we no longer use as because of how it is written. Um, all right, here we go. So Elizabeth Bathory was born August 7th, 1560 uh, to her parents, which are as a product of incest. She is described as having a slender frame, clean complexion, and raven black hair. She was incredibly intelligent, able to be able to speak Hungarian. German, Latin, Greek, and Slovak. However, she was very prone to epileptic fits and migraines. Uh, in 1566, she witnessed the public execution of a gypsy who was accused of theft and selling children into slavery. Her cousin, who was presiding over the trial, had the woman sewn into a horse's stomach. Four years later, in 1570, she was engaged to 15-year-old Ference Nassidy. Um, she was 10, he was 15, and honestly, for the time period, uh, not too terrible a fucking age gap. And uh, they're both, they were both teens, sort of, kid teens. Three years later, on May 8th, 1575, they were married. Uh, once he turned 18 and she was 13 so they brought um, in some things where like we'll often you know don't get me wrong I'm not here to defend the gross practice of marrying your teenage daughters to older men uh, don't um, I don't care about your political alliances she's a child he's in his 40s in this case the ages are a lot closer because at the point of their marriage uh, Ferenc would have been 18 and she would have been well technically 12 uh but it seems like they waited for her to reach puberty um which is sometimes often the case with these when a marriage is arranged for a prepubescent girl they'll wait until she has her first period to actually or until she's closer to adulthood to actually consummate the marriage or they'll have like a proxy marriage just because uh a you shouldn't fuck kids and be um there's no purpose if for it's like yeah sex is fun but like there was also you know they had some catholic shit they had to deal with uh so sex was also supposed to be procreative and there's no point in um having sex with a minor who can't have kids um during the three-day ceremony, Ference gave his wife the Gothic castle at Sujet as a present. Uh, by 1578, Ference went off to fight in the Turks in wars. By 1591, he was known as the Black Knight due to his actions at the Black Bay. It is said that he taught Elizabeth how to physically punish the servants, including uh, offering her a present, which was gloves with claws to beat them senseless. Um, the way I pictured it is like Wolverine claw. Um, no, not like Wolverine claws. Figure like, uh, you know how like cat villains have like the retractable claws when they're slashing to people. That's what I picture. Um, because you know the Bathories and the Nassides were very high-ranking families. They had a lot of estate, so Elizabeth got into the practice of traveling from various regions in order to manage her and her husband's estate and make sure the serfs are doing what they're supposed to with a with like a little bit of beating on the side it is during one of these trips that she hung out with her aunt clara in vienna and was introduced into the wonderful world of lesbian orgies uh it was said that these parties had thousands of guests and were and even had special dark rituals being done by uh clara's servant thorco 
but and such elizabeth got a taste for the dark magics and she uh employed and what and seek the tutelage of various sorcerers witches seers and alchemists in order to make her own medicines and potions she was the uh people were worried because she would use the citizens of her areas to test these things on and was started being known as the beast of Sajet. Uh, in this account we have uh, an actual spell she sent to help her husband on the battlefront uh, quote coat a black hen sorry catch a back black hen and beat it to death with a white cane keep the blood and smear your enemy if you get no chance to smear it on his body, obtain one of his garments and smear it. Which is a bit unnerving and a bit fucked. Um, Carmela started ramping up her punishment of her servants in 1585 uh, with the help of a woman named Anna Daruvlia. It is said that the screams of agony of her servants were something that helped her congenital uh, migraines. And so, however, because her, she was ramping up the violence with this accomplice, that meant uh, a lot of girls were also dying from their injuries. And bishops started to get suspicious about a lot of these women dying from unknown causes or various illnesses. In 1602, Estevan Magari, the local priest, asked um, the Count Nasity elizabeth's husband to uh, ask his wife to stop her cruel treatment of the innocent uh fuck a lot of good that did though because on january 4th 1604 the count was poisoned and he had died this death reminded elizabeth that like she was not gonna live forever at this point this is 1604 so she is uh time to do quick maths 44 and um so uh, it's time for a midlife crisis uh she began experimenting with various creams potions and hair care products um the apocryphal story goes that one day elizabeth was having her hair put up by a servant a young servant girl and the servant girl messed up and in a fit of rage she just beat the servant girl to death with her bare hands and after washing the young woman's blood off her face she noticed that her skin felt tighter and smoother and thus, the terrible practice began. Bathory had... F let's see, let me skip ahead to get the names because I didn't write them this early. Uh, she had four main servants who helped her with this procedures. Catelyn, Iona Joe, Dorothea, and a dwarf named Fisco. So what had happened is the three... Ser the Three servants would drain girls who recently died of their blood and put them into a tub. Uh, Fisco was a young male dwarf, and so they relegated him to the task of burying the bodies in various uh, catacombs under the castle. Uh, one of Elizabeth's favorite things to do was to put women in an iron virgin, uh, similar to an iron maiden where there would be four large spikes that would pierce the woman's body but it was specifically placed so it didn't puncture any of vital organs so she bled out slowly and died in addition um elizabeth sometimes wanted a shower so what would happen is there would be a cage that would be too short to sit but too tall to stand covered in spikes and the victim would be placed in and then they would and raised up and then when the countess was ready they would rock the cage back and forth and she would get skewered with the various spikes in the cage making it rain blood down um the water pressure sounds a bit shit in that one but uh who's who am i to judge the uh torturous practices of a woman in the six in the 17th century um after doing this for a few years uh the countess realized that peasant blood wasn't cutting it anymore uh she wasn't getting it was the fix needed to be stronger needed to be more noble blood to last longer so in 1609 she opened a academy called the gynecaeum where noble men could send their daughters to be taught however 
parents quickly were unhappy with the lack of communication they could have with their children and Bathory's vague excuses about why they weren't hearing from them. So at the end, 12 complaints were made to the royal court of the Hungarian king, whose name was Matthias II. A year later, in 1610, the formal investigation being led by Gregory Thurzo, uh, who interviewed many who testified to various crimes of murder, cannibalism, dark witchcraft. Uh, Thurzo realized that, uh, however, if Bathory was found guilty, the king could seize all her assets and, like, what a waste that would be because, like, he could get rich. So the plan was he made uh, he made an agreement with the heirs of elizabeth's heirs because she had a few children that if they could catch their mom in the act they could imprison her he would get a cut and the children would still get their fortunes so on december 29th 1610 thurzo and an inquisitorial squad broke into the castle and rounded up the servants uh one servant uh who was injured uh blamed uh anna de Ruvula, and elizabeth for her injuries and after a lot of questioning and torture, the servants reported that Bathory had court tortured, killed, and bathed in the blood of 35 to 60 people. However, it is said that there was a ledger found of Elizabeth's actual kill count, uh, which was totaling in the 600s. This was due because as she once she started thinning out the herd of a certain area and people started getting suspicious, she would then move to a different estate. On January 7th, 1611, Elizabeth Bathory and three of her servants were found guilty of vampirism, sorcery, and celebrating pagan rituals. Uh, the three servant, the four servants, uh, which were Caitlin, Iona Joe, DeToya, and Fisco, were sentenced to death. And because of Fisco's age and uh, various deformities, uh, Fisco was beheaded and then thrown on the pyre first before the other three women were burnt. However, Elizabeth was a noble, so she was spared her torture and execution and instead was imprisoned in a castle in a room with a door that was only big enough to for her to receive meals. She protested her innocence, but she died from unknown causes on August 21st, 1614. Uh, the some people suspect foul play. Other people believe that since afterwards her body was missing from the family crypt, that she in fact had used her death to escape so that she could continue to torture people under the disguise of a new young countess. And that is the myth of Elizabeth Bathory. Of course, is the time to discuss the various things that are wrong and some of the arguments historians are making against this tale of the Bathory Countess. For the purpose of delineating this the historical figure versus this mythological blood, uh, blood countess, I will now be referring to the Bathory by her Hungarianized name, which was her birth name, Urzabet. So, Elizabeth Bathory uh, her was not the product of incest. Her parents' lines were seven generations apart, which means that there was 200 years between a common ancestor between the two. Um, yes, she was incredibly intelligent and was able to speak a lot of languages. However, the violence she would have seen as a child might have been exaggerated. For example, in the account where the Romani woman is sewn into a horse's stomach, that punishment would have been saved for bandit leaders, not for Romani women, because in the eyes of the courts, a horse's life would be worth more than the Romani's life. In terms of uh, her picking off and beating her servants, um, it would be unlikely for her to kill off batches of her servants at a time because it would be harder for her to gain new servants because people would no longer want to work for her and there was already some stabbing issues due to resurgences of like the black death in addition to typhus outbreaks and cholera um the lesbian orgies from her aunt were probably also fake on the grounds that 
these parties were attended by thousands of nobles and we have records of nobles visiting the uh, Clara's residence however there's not even code in these journals and correspondences about lesbian orgies so either they really went out of their way to not discuss it at all like a full NDA non-disclosure shit or it's more likely that they uh, it wasn't happening they were just get-togethers her husband's death uh, probably was poisoning, uh, but uh, it is likely he died from mercury poisoning from a venereal disease he got from screwing around while he was off being a soldier. Let's see. Um, in addition, um, in order for her to bathe in the blood of her servants, she would have to get to fully drain 20 women at a time to get enough blood to be able to submerge herself in a bloodbath. In addition, the stories of Elizabeth Bathory being taking bloodbaths weren't written until a hundred years after her death by Laszlo Torosi. Torosi? Torosi. I need to be able to learn to read my own handwriting. Um, also, we have official trial records, and she was never condemned uh, or found guilty of witchcraft and spellcasting. Like, that's that has been a modern makeup. All right, what else do we got? Um, her school for noble girls. Um, if there was such a prevalence of servants going missing and abuse and beating going on, other nobles wouldn't send her their daughters for fear of her beating their fucking daughters up like what like if you need to send off your child to go see someone are you gonna send them off to fucking some nice woman noble woman or the manson family all right one of the key things that is said that has changed where Urzabet's kill count raised was the hiring of Anna Daruvula who was a name I have not pronounced the same this entire time I've said it multiple times also Anna was a midwife healer from Vienna her specialty was bloodletting surgery cauterizing wounds and removing tumors and birthmarks this has led some historians to believe that the prevalence of people leaving the castle with various minor wounds and scarring and the bodies being found with all this scarring is possibly due to these various medical procedures. I have a small working theory that because Anna was a midwife, they might have also gotten some flack from the Catholic Church for performing abortions. Uh, the biggest like swath of deaths under her control or under for people under her reign. Uh, was in 1610 where eight women died in Sujet, and that's when Thurza was contacted. However, at that time, it is incredibly well documented that Urzabet was in Vienna with her daughter. And there's no way she could have murdered those people in a different area. At the indictment in this incident, we often hear it as a story of a torturous thing. There are two main accounts. One account is that they were performing a cesarean in order to save the life of either the mother or the child from a breech birth. Or in the article, it's the fact that a woman had been attacked by wild animals and was brought to the countess to receive emergency medical attention because she was the closest one nearby. Um, Elizabeth trying to make like potions and medicine probably is true because that's alchemy was just kind of a cool fucking thing to do so like why not uh but when arrested the patient who survived the ordeal her testimony was uh not taken into account and thurzo's imprisonment of elizabeth or Elizabeth without her trial it was a completely terribly unprecedented move so there's two main theories about what actually happened in terms of, like, the trial. The first is 
Thurzo was sent there by the Habsburgs. So what it was is the Habsburgs wanted control over the Transylvanian territories, which had been controlled by uh, uh, Erzabet's cousins. They fought back and forth over it. Um, for in 1602, they took uh, Transylvania from Sigmund Bathory, but by 1608, Gabriel Bathory, Elizabeth's cousin, was the prince of Transylvania and wrangled it from uh, Habsburg control. Their big concern was that if Gabriel wanted to strike back against the Habsburg families with the territories from the Nasty Bathory marriage that Elizabeth had, she essentially could, with her territories, give a full, like, corridor for Gabriel's Transylvanian armies to march through and begin to be able to attack Habsburg lands. Another reason that Thurzo could have gone after Elizabeth was the issue of King Matthias II owing Elizabeth a lot of fucking money. Since her husband was a war time general and incredibly good at what he did uh she was uh she was owed a severance from his death and if he was able to find a way to convict Elizabeth of a crime not only at a minimum could he confiscate a third of her territory and wealth he could also make it so he could rescind and not have to pay her any more of the money he owes her for her husband there's a there's so a lot of historians believe that there was this more political uh, aspect of why she was being tried and also because she was a powerful woman and uh, god knows history fucking hates that i actually got a very interesting book that might uh, be the skeleton for a future episode called unlikable female characters by anna bogart uh, bogatskaya I hope I'm pronouncing it like I haven't started reading it yet I literally bought it this morning and I'm really excited to and it's about like the unlikable female tropes and one of them has to do with like people don't like women in power even though you know historically speaking women rulers including queens duchesses and countesses are often more successful and have less issues during their reigns than men do um in the actual story um a lot of the evidence was fishy and Elizabeth died mysteriously in prison. Uh, some believing that Thurzo ended her so that he wouldn't have to finish the trial. However, in a final fuck you, Elizabeth had, had written and notarized a will, meaning that all of her, all of her lands and belongings were willed to her children. So that means that not only could they not get taken from the king from this fake trial because the defendant was dead and the property was no longer hers to be taken um the Habsburg if the Habsburgs wanted to use Thurzo to try to knock it out more Elizabeth Elizabeth had I want to say four children so that's four targets they'd have to take down instead of just one and uh yeah so that's Elizabeth Bathory um a lot of people it's she's in the guinness book of world's records as the world's most prolific serial killer and even if you go with negligence or actual like anger and mistreatment of servants the most you can pin on her is about the deaths of 30 people which granted 30 people can be a lot like i'm not trying to downplay you know a lot of people dying i just i don't know it's Cert, I don't know if she's the most prolific uh, female serial killer. Uh, what about fucking uh, Mao Zedong's wife who had the Council of Five who killed thousands? Or that bitch who was in charge of the Bosnian genocide because she had uh, some terrible thought processes of uh, eugenics on Muslims? Um, oh, also, um, another little misfact just like the iron maiden not being a real medieval torture device and something created by the victorians the iron virgin is the same thing not real they were inventions of the victorians to make themselves seem more civilized against a medieval a quote of like a medieval backwards people because the medieval period they love 
just fucking everybody loves taking the piss out of the medieval period being like well it's the shit period between when rome fell and when the enlightenment and renaissance happened and it's like no they they did a lot of shit like get fucked they did good things um and the victorians actually i mean they weren't no fucking cakewalk either but we don't have time for me to go into rants about the victorians we still have to cover castlevania all right so castlevania is a konami property that makes various games that involve a vampire hunting family named the belmonts although in much later franchises they have intermarried and the names are different but i don't know them all i just know that one of uh, the morrises are important later just because of my one of my favorite castlevania games um, and Carmilla has been a, uh, since she is such this powerful vampire figure in literature, has also shown herself in various games. Uh, she is often a loyal servant of Dracula, doing what she can to support and revive him. Her first appearance is in Castlevania II, Simon's Quest, as one of the uh, three main bosses of the game. She is a floating mask uh, who cries fiery tears. And upon her defeat, you will gain the Magic Cross, which is the only item that allows access into Dracula's castle. It's a bit weird that she's depicted as a mask in this game. From what I understand of the uh, Castlevania wiki, um, is this has to do with, uh, in the short story Carmilla, the second man, the one where they meet uh, whose daughter did die, uh, who met her as Mercalia. Uh, he met her at a masquerade. But I don't know if it's a trans if it's something having to do with my edition. Uh, it was famously put that she wasn't wearing a mask during the masquerade. So who's to say? Then uh, her next appearance was in Castlevania Rondo of Blood. She is the boss of the stage four section with a uh, assistant in her fight being a servant named Laura uh, really driving home the connections to the short story in this one in this game uh, Carmilla is a nude maiden who hides behind a large skull uh, who fires red projectiles at the player uh, Laura's job in the fight is to incapacitate the player and hold them which will drain their health from her abilities and it also make her them an easier target to be hit by Carmilla's bullets. Uh, after that one, the next appearance was uh, Castlevania Dracula X. It, the player character in that game is Richter Belmont and if he fails to save Annette before getting to the end of the clock tower segment of Dracula's castle, uh, Annette becomes possessed by the spirit of Carmilla and replaces death as the boss of that area. Her depiction and move set is similar to the nude skull rider from Castlevania Rondo of Blood. Next, uh, one of her other main... Okay, the last one I'm going to talk about is the one where she is the main, one of the main antagonists of the game. She does appear in a few games after this one, but they're... Konami gets a bit weird after a certain amount of time, and don't get me wrong, I play Yu-Gi-Oh! I love me so some Konami products, but boy, they shit the bed sometimes <laughs> on some of these games and properties. So the final game I'll be talking about before moving to the Netflix series is she is the main antagonist of Castlevania Circle of the Moon. Um, I can tell you for a fact, because I've tried this one, I am bad at it, but I will get back to it someday, because I'm, I'm bad at most Castlevania games. It's not as anything to do with Castlevania. I'm the problem. The only one I've ever been good at is the Nintendo DS one, Castlevania Portrait of Ruin, which doesn't have Carmilla in it at all. It has two vampire twin girls, who if you don't kill them the right way, you get soft-locked out of the rest of the game. Which is a bit fucked. <laughs> so... In Circle of the Moon, which is in the second Castlevania Legacy Collection on the Switch, um, her castle in Austria is the locale of the game. She has resurrected Dracula in 1830 and plans to sacrifice 
a powerful vampire hunter to him for him to become full strength again. In the game, you play as Nathan Graves, who is a student of the vampire hunter who Carmilla has captured. You also arrive there with your mentor's son, Hugh, who will turn against you uh, from being manipulated and controlled by Carmilla. Uh, the plan is, is that by sacrificing the vampire hunter during the lunar eclipse, Dracula will be able to control the dark powers of the world in order to make vampires the dominant race. She even goes as far as to try to condone her actions and stop Nathan from fighting, saying that darkness is the true nature of the human soul. Um, for Castlevania purists, however, everything I just said doesn't fucking matter because the game is not considered canon in the uh, Castlevania timeline. I am not very knowledgeable of the Castlevania timeline. It may come up in a future episode because God knows I'm going to talk about vampires again. I fucking love vampires. Uh, yes, yes, yes. But it's time for the main opus of the reason I wanted to do this episode and the and like the fa- uh, partially why I wanted to do this podcast. Carmilla from the Netflix Castlevania series. So this episode was one of the first episodes I conceptualized when I was coming up with the podcast and having it be this comparative of mythology, history, folklore. And it was because I just also wanted an excuse to talk about how much I love Carmilla from the Netflix Castlevania series. Um, (laughs) She is my favorite character. uh, And she has such this rich uh, background of both, you know, the being inspired by the blood countess elizabeth bathory you've got the short story uh i get to talk about lady vampires which is always a plus so uh yeah so carmilla from the show first appears in season two episode two no called old homes in this depiction she is a slender woman with a pure white hair and piercing blue eyes um she arrives and she's joining Dracula's war count. Um, actually, probably before I do this, spoilers for seasons two through four of Castlevania, because I'm going to go through her entire arc. So, her story begins, season two, episode two. She joins the council. At this point, Dracula has begun his war against humanity, but there's some dissidents in the uh, Council of Vampires because there are two humans in the council even though this is supposed to be this wiping out of humans in order to make vampires the dominant race uh the reason the vamp those two humans are there is because they hate humans and they are forge masters who are creating the night horde army that dracula is using to kill all humans so uh when she arrives everything is in disarray and she's like i come here your war council is in disarray you've got humans on the council and uh, your forces were driven off at Grezit. And yeah, so, and if you loved your wife so much, why didn't you make her a vampire? So immediately she comes in, stirs the fucking pot, and I'm just like, this bitch is my bitch. I have a new favorite. So you find out through um, some of her discussions that the reason she wasn't in the first season was because uh, Dracula's castle moves. But she was in communications with a Viking vampire named Godbrand in order to be apprised of where the castle would be. When asked why Godbrand was contacting her, she's like, I don't know, probably because he wanted to see if he could fuck me. And Dracula's like, would you do it? And she's like, hmm, maybe if all the vampire men died. And half the women. And some of the animals. So you can see this, you know, strong wit. Then, we have her real uh, attacking Godbrand and being like listen I was my master was a crazy senile old man and he promised me the world but he couldn't do anything so I killed him and then I come here and see the leader of our vampire society and what do I see a crazy old man and as such she begins her plans of taking over dracula's war 
allowing him to sit back and rest because what she and Godbrand are realizing is this isn't a fight to make vampires the dominant species. This is a Dracula's suicide and he's just trying to take as many people down with him as he can. From that point, she begins to pull sway with one of the forge actors named Hector. When one of Hector's night beasts comes back and it is reported that uh, Dracula's son Alucard, or Adrian Tepish, has teamed up with the last living Belmont, Trevor, uh, and are on their way to hunt them, uh, Carmilla is uh, incredibly not fucking pleased. As you would be when you find out that, you know, the half-vampire, half-human spawn of your despot leader and the last vampire killer are coming to get you. From there, she says that instead of attacking a different town that uh, one of the Forge Masters, Isaac, is saying they should attack because of its history and showing that a, the old ways of humans are no longer viable, she suggests attacking Brela. Brela is a river port and is closer to the Mediterranean Sea. By taking Brela, they cut off the ability of the humans to escape Wallachia as a whole. And she begins to sow dissidents by having Hector back her up, the other forge master. From there, she begins having him make a series of loyal beasts only to him so that she can begin an assault. By having Dracula move his for his castle to Brela, uh, um, well, I don't, I just literally, you could hear my brain cease to exist for a minute there. Uh, at Brela, Carmilla has a bevy of vampire forces ready to attack the castle and take it. From there, friggin', uh, I'm distracted. Okay, from Brela, she also had Hector, one of his night creatures, is actually the priest who condemned Dracula's wife to death. But because he's a priest, he can sanctify water. So he, he walks into the river, sanctifies the water, which does kill him himself because he is now a night creature and no longer could be sanctified. And so their plan is is to use the whole, essentially the holy rivers to thin Dracula's forces, take the castle, and then begin the culling of the humans in a different way. This plan eventually fails, though, because Hector, Hector, Trevor, and Alucard with the assistance of a speaker mage named Sypha, move Dracula's castle so that they can begin their siege, and it gets moved away from Brela. So essentially, Carmilla's like, cool, I'm stuck here with my dick in my hands and a forge master. So in order to make herself feel better, she beats the shit out of Hector, and it's like, we're going back to Styria, as this is far from over. And that's how her arc in Season 2 ends. By the time we meet her in Season 3... Uh, she has dragged Hector across, beat him to half to death, and has lost a considerable number of her forces. She, We then meet the Council of Four, which are a four-women council led by Carmilla to govern the vampire body of Styria. These women uh, work together, and as told in the first, in the opening speech, all they want to do is make a home for themselves. However, Carmilla's place in this is she's the dreamer. And she sees that Dracula's dead. And many of the vampire generals were lost, whether it be at Brela or during the siege on Dracula's castle. Making a large swath of territory open for the taking. As such, one of the key arcs of season three is uh lenore another vampire woman who i might do either we'll either get her own episode or we'll come up in another episode um she seduces hector and makes it so that uh, binds her binds him to her will then through the use of a magic ring binds him to everyone's will and therefore every night creature that hector makes 
is now a loyal servant of Carmilla and the council. Uh, these things go south, however, in season four, because you can start to see that Carmilla's mental state is uh, significantly dropping. Uh, she's having trouble uh, with some post-traumatic stress disorder and uh, planning, just constantly pouring over maps, constantly being like dealing with the fact that like she's had so much taken from her and this is now her chance to take things back. Uh, the speech at the beginning that I gave was the speech that she gave to Lenore when Lenore asked her what the plan really was. You know, well, I will take the world. Um, however, there is dissidence in the court because Lenore isn't so sure because if Carmilla takes over the world, her place in the council will be kind of moot because she's the diplomat. There's no point for diplomacy if you rule everything. In addition to that, there's also the fact that the logistician and general have begun going out and seeing what it's going to take to claim these territories and are learning that the humans are going to fight back no matter what. And they will not take this lying down. And it's a bloody battle that almost results in the death of both the logistician and the general. So they turn around and go back to Styria. However, Hector has been a busy little bee because since he's been making night creatures, he has also given free reign of the castle and has begun springing a trap. His fellow forge master Hector, uh, Hector, his fellow forge master Isaac, uh, after going on a spiritual journey, has begun to ooh, decide to destroy Carmilla, seeing her as the reason that Hector betrayed Dracula, not Hector himself. From So using a scrying mirror found in a city after defeating Legion, which is a very cool but also very gross boss, um, he, Hector begin, god damn it, Isaac, getting my forge masters mixed up, Isaac lays siege to Carmilla's estate. Uh, for his assistance, Hector... Um, after destroying, after slicing off his finger that had the ring that bound him to Lenore and the vampire coven, um, is able to keep Lenore safe because he's still, they're disaster straits. They love each other, but they're very toxic. Um, and Carmilla is in her study just fighting wave after wave of friggin' night creatures. It gets to a point where she is shed so much blood of these night creatures that it's like flowing down the hall and down the steps uh she gives herself into her animal instincts and however isaac with the assistance of a couple of night creatures uh, is able to best her and wound her severely and in a final act of defiance Carmilla decides to try to take as many of them out with her as she can, and so she stabs herself in the heart, engulfing the place in a pillar of flame. She came in like a firecracker, and she's fucking going out like a firecracker. Uh, Carmilla is one of, is such a fun character. She is my favorite character of Castlevania. Um, it was real fun because I um, this episode is one of those ones where I got to cheat. Um, if you know oh this is a comparative mythology folklore and pop culture podcast so if i just you know fucking play on my phone and watch castlevania for a few hours uh i'm doing research and it's always fun to revisit and she's got some of the best lines in the show and it was really fun to being able to uh gush about her to you guys for a bit but yeah that's carmilla and that is going to do it for this week's episode um thank you for bearing with me with some of the technical difficulties i had last week um uh, based off of uh, the, some of the testing I did in this new program and uh, in recording this episode, I think from now on I will be using Audacity to record all the episodes and I will no longer be having uh, just chunks of the podcast missing. I had to fix this one because the first episode that I had troubles with was the episode about Ku Cullen. And on that episode, we lost the first segment which was my standard warning that this is going to have swears which i mean is fine because the po all of these podcasts are marked as explicit and then it missed the ending which was the patreon plug um 
And it's like, you know what, that's fine, because the bulk of the episode, which was, you know, the story of the Ulster Cycle and Kukulin, you know, the meat of the episode was still there. So that's why I didn't change or augment that episode. But with last week's episode, as I was informed, uh, you got the first 10 minutes of the intro, and then you got the last 15 minutes, which is not, which means you missed the 40 minutes of discussion in the middle, which I could not have. Um, but yeah, so I hope this new system works out a little better. Um, I'm already seeing, just from listening through it, a little bit of audio things that are better, because I can actually hear myself better, at least personally, and I am hope. Um, if you guys want to give me feedback about uh, things that were a little different or things that you liked and didn't like about this new software, uh, as always, you can contact me at uh, White Trash Historian on TikTok or Instagram. Um, I guess you could also technically contact me at Discord at uh, Drew Varney the Vampire, um, because there's a theme and I'm a messy bitch who loves a theming. And, uh, as always, you can support the uh, podcast financially at Patreon, uh, from patreon.com slash cavalcadeoftales. At the $5 tier, you can join the Discord and the We Don't Talk About Book Club book club, um, which will get their own Patreon-specific episodes. There will be nothing on the main feed about the Patreon books. Uh, at the moment, we are halfway through June. Uh, there are no patrons, so I think I'm going to revamp... Uh, pun not intended based off the subject of this episode um the patreon perks and mess around with it a little bit i'm still going to keep that five dollar tier as the discord and book club i might augment what the other tiers are but um obviously i'm not going to post a episode of a book club for a book club that's just by myself because that's sad um but yeah i hope you guys enjoyed this episode next week's episode i think i know what i'm gonna do uh, it's gonna take a bit of research and uh a lot of apologizing and it's probably going to be an episode that might make some people mad but uh who knows uh i'm a messy bitch that lives for drama so we'll figure it out as we do it uh thank you as always for listening i will talk to you all next week bye